Today's special federal election recap episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about communications? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for an internal communications specialist based in their Melbourne office. Uh, There's a lot of variety in this role and responsibilities include developing and implementing engaging and purposeful internal communications across the firm's 33 offices, as well as assisting with employee engagement to achieve their strategic goals. To apply for this job, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Be part of change and fight for a fair apply now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on this week's episode and for the next six weeks, we will be joined by former senator and former member for Batman, David Feeney, and the executive director for Per Capita, Emma Dawson. As the three of us, every Friday, will break down the week that was in this 2022 federal election campaign. So if you want the best biased pro-labor inside analysis of the campaign, then this is the podcast for you. Join uh, Emma, David and myself every week for the next six weeks to take us all the way through to uh, E-Day, which is the 21st of May in this critically important election campaign for uh, great progressives out there that want to see real change and that means changing the government and electing an Albanese Labor government. So here's the place to get all your inside information for the campaign. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And when you're done listening to today's episode, leave us a review on either Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on Holy Thursday morning on the land of the Wurundjeri people and welcome to our first of six weekly federal election recap episodes. Uh, which I'm very excited about. And to help me break down uh, the week that was in this critically important 2022 federal election, I'm joined by two amazing people that you're going to get to know quite closely over the course of the next six weeks. I'm joined, first of all, by the former federal member for Batman, former senator, and most importantly, former campaign director for the Australian Labor Party. Welcome back to Socially Democratic, David Feeney. A pleasure to be back, Stephen, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, and straight off the back of an incredibly successful John Kay Memorial Oration event with uh, Premier Dan Andrews last night. Uh, she's a former senior policy advisor to the Rudd and Gillard governments and now the executive director for Per Capita, an independent progressive think tank. Emma Dawson, welcome finally to the Socially Democratic family. Thank you. It's so great to be part of it. <laughs> uh, I'm very excited to have you both on the, uh, on this on this show um, as we uh, cover this uh, federal election. Uh, and the reason why I'm specifically wanted the both of you to come on this show is just because of the experience and expertise you bring from various parts of the work that is critical in, in an election campaigns, both policy analysis, but also campaign strategy. Um, so I'm really looking forward to having you guys on the show and giving a very unfiltered lived experience and bring to the conversation um, your thoughts about how the campaign is unfolding. Um, and, uh, and how we think Labor are tracking as we zero in on uh, on election day on on uh, the twenty uh, first of of uh, May, which is only thirty seven days away. Um, before we um, uh, throw to you guys uh, for our audience out there, just to sort of give you guys a bit of a structure of how each show each week is going to work between the three of us, we're going to take a look at um, I guess the po- campaign policy announcements that have been made by the two parties, what we can glean from those announcements in terms of you know who are they targeting and voters, what does it mean in terms of the policy uh, broader discussion. 
um, which is probably something that's a little will be probably absent from the uh, mainstream media. I don't think they seem to cover policies that much these days, and we'll probably talk a bit about that later. Um, and we're also going to look at the campaign strategy itself from both camps. You know, what are the key messages, ad spends, you know, where are the leaders going? What does it tell us about where their resources are, their priorities are, and what we're hearing from the ground? And finally, we're also going to do a bit of a critique on the media itself and how they're covering the campaigns. Um, and if there's any sort of polling that comes up over the course of the week, we'll do a bit of analysis uh, of that and get a better sense of where we think things are heading towards election day. The other thing I want to say to our audience is if you've got any questions for our panel over the next six weeks, we're, you know, basically we're going to be all hanging out for the next six weeks together. So if you have got any questions, please hit us up um, on our Dun Street socials, um, on our on um, so our, our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, but also I'll, I'll plug both David and uh, Emma's um, socials as well at the end of the show. So if you want to actually ask them directly for, you know, to put it to them for the show, you should, should do so as well. And hopefully um, either Emma or David will endeavour to answer those questions. Okay, first of all, now that we've got our um, housekeeping out of the way, I want to start with you. Actually, start, sorry, David, I want to start with you. Um, heading to this election, how are you feeling about this campaign? And I'm just wondering, because talking to a lot of folks out there, Labor Party people, we've all got a bit of PTSD from the 2019 campaign, and I want to get a sense from, first of all, you, uh, David, and then I'll throw to you, Emma. How are you feeling heading into this election campaign? Uh, well, I guess I would say I'm feeling anxious. I mean, obviously, I'm... Um, aching for a Labor victory, and uh, I'm concerned that this is a very close contest uh, and that in these election contests, the Liberal Party at a federal level has proven again and again that it is um, a very capable election machine and it's operating across an Australian landscape which um, in many respects suits it um, because in you know, key states like Queensland, for instance, where Labor has only seven of 30 seats, um, the Liberal Party has, uh, you know, a giant advantage and part of the task of this campaign is whittling that back and it's not easy to do. Um, the, I think all of us in Labor may have had a sense of confidence as we approached day one because this government has simply been so bad on so many fronts and has sort of stumbled from one crisis and one failure to another. Um, but there is this sense, I fear, on since day one of the campaign that the slate has been swept clean and both sides are now starting from the same baseline, um, which is deeply frustrating because this has a government, this is a government that has a record that needs a lot of attention. Emma, I want to get a sense about how you're feeling, but the uh, supplementary question as well is, I mean, you spend a lot of time in your line of work uh, dealing with stakeholders on the progressive side um, of, of broader society. Um, how, how do, can you get a sense about how they're feeling heading into this uh, election uh, campaign as well? Yeah, n nervous. Um, I think the people that we work with are often the ones that that rely the most on the kind of, you know, fair society that only happens under a Labor government. Um, a lot of the people that we work with are very marginalised or um, certainly work in low-paid industries, um, some of our union colleagues and so on that represent some of the lowest-paid workers. A lot of the um, women in the care and foundational economy that we do a lot of work with are really banking on uh, a Labor government. A lot of the commitments they've made already about lifting pay for care workers and so on. Um, and so they feel very invested in that. Uh, and, of course, we work a lot with uh, social services organisations. There's a little bit of dismay amongst those, particularly today, um, believing that there won't be a meaningful change to the, the rate of income support, uh, no matter who wins the, the election. Um, but it's a little different than last time around. I think people uh, in the kind of civil society sector were quite shocked when Labor didn't win in 2019 and they had been campaigning almost against Labor as an incumbent government before they were elected. I think there's been a recognition that that wasn't helpful um, to, their, to many of their causes and so they're being a little more circumspect this time and trying to engage more proactively. Um, but they're certainly amongst, um, you know, groups that represent people that are on the margins of society are really desperate, desperate feeling that the, the government has to change, um, that we need a government that, that cares about those that are otherwise, you know, marginalised from the labour force or marginalised from, um, from broader society. There's a lot of um, agitation around cost of living and I think they see labour as at least 
aware of that issue and um, and feel very strongly that they've gone for, you know backwards. Pe- people in the bottom forty percent of income households, for example, have really gone backwards in material terms under this government. So um, there's a genuine desperation for an improvement in the way we are governed and an improvement in the standards of living of those people that we work with. Emma, if I can stick with you, um, I want to get a sense of. Uh how are the two campaigns, but starting with Labor, how are the two, how is Labor setting themselves up heading into this election campaign from a policy standpoint, a policy um, offering? Um, when I think about the, the 2014 and 2018 Victorian state elections, the Andrews government or the Andrews campaign team really focused heavily on a grid-ish set of issues of jobs, health, education, public transport, and jobs sort of weaved its way through all of those things. Yep. Um, what's the positive policy... Uh, frame that Labor is going to take into this campaign and want to present to the electorate um, heading into the 21st of May? Um, I think it's better than it's been widely acknowledged to be in most of the media. Um, there's a there's a real determination to paint it as a very small target agenda. And certainly compared to the number of policies that were out there ahead of the 2019 election, I think Albanese has been very clear since he took the leadership that he wasn't going to repeat that process of having you know a policy for everyone that came with a begging bowl asking for something, but rather would try to have a cohesive narrative and a, and a story about why Labor is better for the country. Country. And I think they're doing that. I think um, it's hard for them to to cut through with it because a lot of it is stuff that the press pack, um, particularly the gallery, don't find particularly sexy, right? So talking about um, aged care and uh, the crisis in our social care system. But if you actually look at what Albo's done, he's framed a very clear narrative around Labor being the party that can rebuild after crises, that Labor's the only party that's ever rebuilt after crises in Australia in the past, a better future. It's not good enough to go back to what we had before. There's quite a clear distinction between Morrison saying what we just need to get back to where we were before the pandemic, everything was great, and Labor sort of treading a careful line between not saying the country was terrible but saying it wasn't working, the economy wasn't working for too many people. So there's a very clear reconstruction narrative, um, a commitment to full employment, to better, safer, more secure jobs, to the training and education and skills training in particular that goes with that, and a, and a Labor Cares narrative, which, you know, I'm a huge supporter of, having been pushing the care economy stuff for a long time, Labor Cares, Medicare, Disability Care, Aged Care, early childhood education and care. And I think that that is a, it's not only a smart message given the last couple of years when we've we've seen, you know, the, the country increasingly critical of a prime minister that appears not to care about them during during big moments of, of crisis, but also it it is a shift away from the more traditional um, hard hats and, and blue collar uh, jobs approach to reconstruction. It's it's embracing that, but also the other side of the economy, the services side. Um, and I think that's really an important narrative. So I think it's a good policy offering. I think it's sharp and I think it's cohesive. It won't satisfy everyone. Um, but it, going into an election, it's really important, I think, to, to focus on what you would offer differently to the incumbent and what the framework for that is. And I think Albo's done a good job with that. David, picking up on those, uh, that uh, excellent summary from uh, Emma, do we get a sense then that the what what Labor perceived to be the critical uh, voting blocks that are required to win enough seats in the House of Representatives to form government in with what they're going to the electorate with? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously in a country as big and broad as ours, there are a lot of diverse audiences that Labor needs to appeal to. And I think as it's formed a strategy to do that, it it has deliberately sought to not advance policies that would lend themselves to scare campaigns. Um, And I I think that's an important um, factor in assessing Labor's policy offering is um, a clear-eyed sense of what News Corp will do um, when it gets its hands on a, a brave Labor policy um, in, in terms of running scare campaigns. Because a big part of this campaign for Labor uh, is uh, Western Australia and Queensland. And uh, and there we've got audiences that are... Um, I guess, you know, using a very broad brush, um, they are white, 
Um, they are middle education but high income um, and they are audiences that um, are often traditionalist in their um, social outlook. Um, but in other key battlegrounds, um, to Sydney, Melbourne, um, you're looking at, uh, I guess, more traditional labour audiences, that, outer suburban audiences that include a lot of people not born in Australia, a lot of people who are um, working in insecure work. Um, so Labor's offering um, needs to be broad enough to appeal to outer suburban Melbourne, outer suburban Sydney, um, but also encompass regional Tasmania um, and critical audiences in regional um, Queensland and across Perth, really. Um, and so uh, those are the key um, electorate. Well, that's where most of the key electorates are found. Um, and harnessing them together is, as 2019 showed us, um, a big challenge uh, because we have to be uh, vigilant about the fact that in talking to one audience, we don't find ourselves um, uh, opening up a flank uh, for, or an opportunity for a scare campaign to then be mounted in another audience. Um, it's worth noting, of course, that the Liberal Party in particular have precisely the same challenge um, where they sort of try and be uber um, conservative um, socially as well as economically in the Western Australia and Queensland, but then deal with blowback in inner city Sydney and Melbourne as a consequence. So this isn't a problem that's unique to Labor, but it's something that was very, very destructive for us in 2019, and clearly um, the strategic team are alive to that um, now. Yeah, it's, I mean, who would you... Sometimes we often think of things from our own perspective, but if you were to put yourself in the position of Scott Morrison right now, I mean, how comfortable are you feeling about the fact that there's these Voices for campaigns running in your, in, in your, you know, in your heartland where you've never really had to put resources into campaigning in seats like in Victoria, for example, Goldstein and Kuyong, Higgins, um, and a whole bunch of seats in, um, in the wealthier parts of Sydney as well, to then having to deal with that. I mean, should, how worried should Scott Morrison and um, Liberal Party headquarters be about this insurgency that is, uh, that is happening in their backyard? David, I'll ask you first, and then um, um, Emma, I'll get your thoughts on it as well. Well, I don't think we should underestimate the experience the Liberal Party's harnessed in recent times in managing this. Um, there was a big challenge in Kuyong and Higgins um, in previous elections and the Liberal Party um, has won them. Um, they are, from Labor's perspective, wonderful diversionary actions as they take the energy and resources of our adversaries and spend them in places we don't care about. But... Um, the Liberal Party has shown itself to not be a babe in the woods in, in these contests. And, of course, in New South Wales, um, the same is true. Where I mean, the Liberals haven't always won them there, but they've harnessed experience in what they're up against. So these sort of teal independents, Greens who love capitalism, um, are, not, are, are not a new phenomena. They've been woven together in this election campaign in a way that is evolutionary, but they are not a new phenomena uh, for the Liberal Party, and the Liberal Party have dealt with them before. I think it's interesting to note um, the Morrison's recent foray into trans policy, um, where he was speaking or seeking to speak, you know, directly to the most... Um, to, trying to ignite a culture war um, where the sort of cultural um, security question um, was is something that we've seen... Um, conservatives all around the world ruthlessly exploit. The fact that they are willing to raise that and seek to exploit it here and now says that in some ways those inner-city progressive audiences are something that the Liberal Party is already um, accounting for losses amongst, not necessarily lost seats. They might be taking the view that um, those sorts of um, progressive voters are already voting independent or green in those inner-city contests and that there's no point trying to hang on to them. They're going to win those seats, like Kuyong, for instance, um, with a with a traditional Liberal Party vote. I, so, but I think that sort of cultural security line um, that we saw the trans issue seek to exploit is something that 
um, works for the Liberal Party across large swathes of Australia and, and they haven't stopped yet. Um, and just to add to that point, as I, before I throw it to Emma as well, I mean, I'd heard on the ground that uh, the Goldstein campaign for the Libs had only raised around about $100,000, um, whereas um, we've heard um, reports of upwards of a million dollars that um, Zoe Daniel has actually accumulated thus far. And after that huge launch she had over the weekend, you'd imagine there'd be a lot more money being piling into that she's getting momentum. So the Goldstein campaign will be very interesting to watch. Um, Emma, what are your thoughts on this on this insurgency in Liberal Heartland? Yeah, look, I think that's a key point, Stephen, that you've just made, because it's not just about how much Tim Wilson can raise to, to spend in his own seat, right? Traditionally, the Liberal Party has relied on the wealthy supporters in Goldstein and Kuyong and Higgins to put funds into the coffers that they can then spend in other seats. So the fundraising issue will have a real impact on their ability to campaign uh, around the country. It will have an impact on their fundraising. And I think certainly the Zoe Daniel campaign here in, in Goldstein and the seat next to mine um, is pretty impressive. It's, it's a pretty impressive campaign. They know uh, their local community very well. It's a real grassroots campaign. Um, and I think David's right to some extent. That they've always had this sort of tension in the broad church that is the Liberal Party, right? But um, what it's what it's really interesting to me is many of the teal independents, not all of them, there are a couple from, you know, that have previously flirted with the Labor Party, um, but many of them are really blue blood Liberal family members, you know, Allegra Spender in Wentworth, Kate Cheney over in WA, who in a previous generation would have been pre-selected for the Liberal Party. Ian McPhee, the former member for Goldsteins, is supporting Zoe Daniel down here. So there's that kind of feeling that the party's moved so far to the right that these are people that would be traditional Liberal voters trying to wrest back their party from the kind of extreme right-wing Tea Party-style politics of Scott Morrison and the Nationals. Um, so that's an interesting thing to me, even beyond this election, is this, you know, a battle over the soul of the Liberal Party. And depending very much on who wins this election, uh, if, if, Liber if the Liberals do lose, if the Coalition does lose, I think they're going to have some serious reckoning within their internal party structures to deal with. Um, in terms of what it means for the election, I think, you know, David's point about Greens who love capitalism, um, what's interesting to me is how much oxygen the independents are taking out of the Greens campaign. You know, you look at um, Adam Bannon mm. saying he was going to target 11 seats and govern from the crossbench, fundamentally anti-democratic, but that's Adam for you. Um, but he's now saying, look, it might be four or five seats at most. And I think realistically, he's even starting to talk about now the Senate and just holding the balance of power in the Senate, because he can see that what the Greens have of all that sort of position that the Greens have always held, the kind of tree Tory position that we often mock them for, is a real a real important part of their base, right? It's an important part of their donor base. And it's an important part of the base that gets out and campaigns for them um, during elections. And they're losing a lot of that momentum because they're no longer the only ones talking about climate change, as they say. You know, the independents have made that a big deal. But the other point I'd make is climate change, integrity in politics and equality for women are the three issues on which most of these independents are campaigning. They should not be left-right or partisan issues, right? Acting on climate change shouldn't be a left-right issue. Women's equality shouldn't be a left-right issue. And uh, integrity in politics shouldn't be a left-right issue. And the fact that they've become seen as uh, a, a partisan issue and that there are traditional Liberal supporters campaigning against a Liberal government on those issues shows you how far down the kind of Tea Party route this government has gone, particularly under Morrison's leadership, I think. And this idea that he's endlessly pragmatic, um, he's not as pragmatic as John Howard was, able to keep all these people in the tent. He's, he's that ideology that's kind of eschewing action on climate change. We've seen women's economic participation drop from 13th in the world to 70th in the world under the term of this government. And his refusal again today to come out and basically say, I'm not going to do ICAC unless Labor agrees to my flawed model. Um, these are issues that should be, you know, should be embraced by all thinking people. And I think what we see from the independence movement is that that, that sort of smaller liberal, fiscally conservative, socially progressive part of their party is really disillusioned with what's on offer. If I can just jump in, um, part of, you might remember in 2019, we saw a bit of this too, um, with Zali and various other independence roaming across the Liberal Party heartland, causing them heartburn. And in 2019, as now, we watched that insurgency and um, 
obviously celebrated and embraced it. But I remember thinking at the end of the 2019 campaign, um, how helpful were that was that for Labor on the larger stage? And I'd just make this point. Um, these teal independents get a lot of publicity, a lot of breathless excitement from journalists. I mean, these these teal independents are demographic. You know, they live where the journalists live. They look like the journalists. They sound like the journalists. They, the journalists relate to them very, very... Progressive journalists relate to them very, very much and cover them with enormous enthusiasm. And while that's obviously deeply irritating for the government because these independents make the points that you just eloquently described, they do suck oxygen from Labor and they do play a role, I think, in diminishing um, Labor's position as you know, the, the opposition, as the, as the force that is gathering the anti-government um, momentum. So um, I just put that caveat in. It's not all good news for Labor and the sort of breathless enthusiasm of The Guardian and others um, does, uh, I think, give these characters um, a standing um, which isn't all isn't all good for Labor. I'll never forget, I'll finish with this, I'll, I'll never forget in 2019 as it kind of dawned on us all as we were watching the screens that Labor had just lost this election and that sick feeling of defeat was just upon us and we all got to watch Zally Stegall stand up and claim victory and she said this is an enormous victory for climate change mm. and I just remember thinking these these guys are living in an alternate universe um, climate denying team just got re-elected to national government and winning your one village with you might have been a magnificent part of your personal story but your cause has gone nowhere mm. and we just need to be vigilant about that. Look I I, can I just agree with David really on that? I think the point about the media, uh, media being enamoured with these candidates is a really important one. Zoe Daniel, of course, is or was a journalist. Um, and I've long noticed in the media, and it's it's got particularly concentrated in the last five years, because I was a media policy advisor to Stephen Conroy in the, in the former Rudd and Gillard government, so I, I take great interest in this stuff, and that's my former academic background. What we sort of have now in Australian media is that it's become a kind of upper-middle-class bastion of, of people. There, there, aren't, there are some exceptional lower, you know, working-class journalists, Rick Morton, Lett Blaine, others like that, but generally speaking, political journalists tend to share that small-l liberal, socially progressive, fiscally conservative mindset. And what I'm seeing playing out in the media landscape now with the new entrants like Guardian Australia, relatively new entrant, um, and some of the online services like Junkie and Vice that are aimed at young people, is that the dominant voices, uh, or, the, or whether or not they realise it, and I've had this discussion with editors and journalists, and they don't like to acknowledge this, but it's very clear to me that there's a small-l liberal point of view and there's a young green left point of view that dominate our uh, media conversation around politics and that does make it very hard for Labor. The centre-left position that we have, you know, traditionally espoused is not given a lot of a lot of um, carriage by the media these days. There's an almost widespread acceptance of the kind of um, rationalist economic model uh, the, and, and of treating unions as some kind of, you know, dodgy thing that Labor needs to distance itself from. Um, and that's almost entirely a creation, I think, of the media class reflecting itself and its preferences in the coverage. Yeah. Can we, let's, uh, let's now turn to, um, now that we've sort of, set, I guess, set ourselves up for the, what we think the campaign is going to look like, can we turn to the, the week that was? Yeah. which we're going to do um, each week and st starting with uh, kicking off the actual campaign. Um, David, are we surprised that one, it took Morrison that long to call the election and two, that the date he chose, a lot of people were speculating it would be the week before, not the final, final last day that you could have the election. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on the tactics that um, Morrison took into calling this election? Yeah, I was completely unsurprised, and except insofar as I'm surprised that anyone was surprised. Same. I mean, here's a government that's on the back foot, so it's going to remain in power for as long as it can. It's going to choose a long campaign because it's coming from behind and it needs to make up ground, and so it will seek to 
have as much time as possible. Um, and he delayed holding the election or calling the election um, and for a reasonable amount of time because they had an awful lot of announcements they wanted to make as government um, coming out of the budget. Um, so, for instance, uh, when you uh, call an election and go into caretaker, um, the opposition suddenly gets accorded a particular status. It, it, it has equal rights in terms of you know, trans moving around the country and talking to people and access to facilities. Morrison wanted to hold that day off for as long as possible um, and, as government, um, start talking about the billions of dollars that they were splashing around. So I think that was all very, very predictable um, and uh, you know, it made absolute sense in a ruthless political sense that um, you know, they wanted to keep Labor as an opposition rather than as part of caretaker government. They wanted to milk the budget for all they could um, they wanted to stay in government for as long as possible. May 21 made sense. I always st stuck to the theory that uh, politicians like to drive around with a car with a flag on the bonnet and they really, really like that and they don't like to give that up and they want to hang on to it for as long as they possibly can. Um, and shark one. Don't forget shark one. Indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, then let's turn our attention to so the election's called uh we'll do the ads in a moment but um we've uh one of the very very first uh press conferences that we had uh from uh anthony albanese was in adelaide um and we had this moment where he gets asked a question uh a, a, um, a, a stat question uh, uh emma dawson just uh you know maybe for those of you that missed it if you're on another planet Give us a bit of an give us a bit of an overview of what happened, and I just want to get your initial thoughts on it because I think this is actually certainly in my own social circles of um, former political hacks. We're a little bit divided about this, about whether this was a if this is something we should be worried about. So I want to get your thoughts, but just give us a bit of an overview of what, exactly what happened. Yeah, well, I don't know how people could have missed it because the media has done everything they could to ensure that nobody could have possibly missed it, which is fair enough, I guess. Um, so Anthony Albanese was in Tasmania um, day one of the campaign on Monday, um, stood up with his local candidates and, and, and key front benches um, and was doing his, you know, uh, question and answer at the end of the press conference and was asked what if he knew what the cash rate was and the unemployment rate. Um, and after stumbling a bit, he just said, look, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Um, and this, of course, has been jumped on as a sign that the man who um, Scott Morrison wants to paint as inexperienced and unable to handle the economy <clears throat> isn't across the most basic economic facts. Now, I don't think not knowing the cash rate in itself would have been a big deal. I think where it became a big deal was when he couldn't name the unemployment rate and said it was 5.4, and, of course, it's it's around 4%. And I don't believe for a second that Albo didn't know that. I think he just forgot in the moment. Um, and he's human. And he did stand up later in the day and said, I made a mistake and I'll own that mistake. And that was the only real way to, to come back from something like that. Um, does it matter? It matters because of the way that we cover campaigns in this country, what Jay Rosen's called horse race journalism, right? Um, it matters because the press pack will stand up every day and ask you those facts and figures. And uh, if it were true that Albanese had been sent out to front the media on day one without having an information pack with those facts and figures in, that would be unforgivable. But I'm sure he did. You know, I'm sure any basic junior staffer knows to prepare that. It looked very much to me like a memory lapse in, in, the, in the heat of the campaign. It was a very unfortunate one because, of course, we're talking all the time about wages and jobs and cost of living. Um, I think it has been overly beaten up this week. You know, I think the media loves a gotcha and it was a classic gotcha. Um, and actually, it's very rare for me to do this, but Adam Bant handled a similar question much better yesterday at the press club when he said, look, Google it, mate. You know, this isn't important. Albo wouldn't get away with that, right, though, on the, on the campaign trail. He just, he just isn't, Bant just isn't held to the same standards. Um, but there is a point at which I think the party starts to push back and go, look, Albo might have forgotten the unemployment rate briefly on day one of the campaign. The point is the unemployment rate isn't translating into better jobs and better wages for people. So it's really a, a figure that doesn't matter as much as it used to because it doesn't say what it used to say about our economy. And that's where I'd be trying to pivot the conversation to now if I were them. Uh, David, let's Monday quarterback this. If you were Albo and that, was, that question was posed to you, how should he have answered that? 
Um, well, I think to go back a step um, in terms of the debate you're having with your apparatchik friends, um, unfortunately, this did matter. Uh, and uh, it mattered because we can't ever afford to forget what an enormous force multiplier News Corp is for the coalition. Uh, and they have been scratching around for months now to find vulnerabilities in Labor that they can um, dramatically amplify, um, and this was the one, this was a great one for them in the first week of the campaign. So we saw, you know, Don't Count on Me as a headline in the Herald Sun, It's Not So Albanese in the Daily Telegraph, Economics Not So Albanese in the Australian um, they went to town on this and did everything they could to paint um, Albo as an inexperienced leader who doesn't understand economics. That feeds directly into the key re-election narrative of this government, which I guess we'll come to. So this was a, a mistake on message as far as the coalition was concerned um, and as far as News Corp was concerned, and they have ruthlessly exploited it. And journalists, I mean, I'm not confined my remarks to News Corp. I, you know, every god and their dog in the media jumped on this as a vitally important moment in Australian history um, in a, in, with the sort of rampaging frenzy that only the gallery really can manage from time to time about inconsequential things. Um, but they all did it. Uh, and, it mean, and, and the danger for Labor is, I think, twofold. The first is that um, it... It, for, for voters who don't know Albo, and we're constantly reading research saying that that's an issue, notwithstanding the fact that he's been in Parliament for 25 years and a former Deputy Prime Minister, um, we don't want this to be the, their introduction to him. Mm. And I guess, secondly, it starts the campaign um, with a, a wobble that gives momentum to the coalition and robs Labor of momentum. So I think that this was um, a, a very bad moment for us. The only silver lining is it's week one. Um, and so everybody's got time to get over it and carry on. Um, and, you know, God willing, that's what will happen. But um, it, it was an important moment um, because, you know, we're not just in a contest with the coalition. We're in a contest with the coalition and it's very powerful and focused and energetic media allies. Um, and they milked this for everything they could. Yeah. It's, you know, I kind of thought that just like how, you know, politicians never wanted to admit that they did drugs at university, then, you know, George uh, W. Bush and Obama both admitted they did coke. And then all of a sudden we just moved on to that. We just don't ask that question anymore. It's not an issue anymore. And I kind of thought the gotcha questions on stats since <laughs> Donald Trump, we don't ask those questions anymore. And this came, I felt like this was a bit retro and I was like, I, the, the argument, I, and I, I take all of your points you've just said there, David, and I actually agree with all of that, but I, my initial reaction was, who cares? Mm. You know, like, honestly, who cares? I guess if, and in hindsight, if I was elbow, I would have said, mate, I don't know the answer to that, but that's why I've got a, uh, a, a tre- I got, I've got a great yeah. treasurer and I've got a great finance minister and they're the people that should know that thing. I'm here to try and lead the country out of mm. one of the worst pandemics that we've ever experienced and, you know, and a terrible government, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And to your point about Adam Bant, he had time to come up with that answer because he's already seen someone else fuck it up, right? So That's right. He's workshopped it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if he couldn't land that. Yeah, but also imagine if Albo had said, just Google it, mate. Well, yeah. What, would, what yeah. would the Australian and the Daily Telegraph Precisely. He wouldn't have, have done with that? No, he wouldn't have got away with that. And I think the point, you, I, look, I agree with you, Stephen, but the point is it is a bit retro, but the media here will do it to Albo. You know, they will do that because they are deliberately trying to trip him up and it's become such an accepted way of covering elections here and, and swinging voters, that's how they tune in. They, you know, they're told the same thing repeatedly by multiple journalists. It starts to take on an element of truth. But I, I also think, and I, I said the same thing on Sky News that very afternoon, that, you know, Katie Gallagher knew the numbers off the top of her head Jim Chalmers would know them too. I think that would have worked if it had just been the cash rate, but I think the unemployment rate for a PM that is campaigning heavily on jobs and wages is where it became a real problem for him. But like David said, it was day one, week one, it's time to move beyond that. And I think, um, you know, if they, if 
it's going to keep coming up and it will because we do have a very powerful campaigning media organisation uh, dominating the media in this country, despite our best efforts to do something about that a decade ago, um, that, that, you know, it will keep coming up and it's time to shift that conversation away from, well, why, if four, as I said earlier, if 4% so great... How come twice as many people are on job seeker as they were when you came to government? If everyone's got, if so many more people have got a job, how come so many more people are still struggling and their living standards are going backwards? Because it it, it don't mean what it used to mean. No, it's not a prosperity measure anymore. No, not anymore. How many people are in casual and insecure work? Yep. Let's then do that and segue off of that this uh, topic and move to uh, Emma. If I can quickly ask you, what insight? What what announcements did? Labor make this week, um, mm. as opposed to I didn't ask you the question. What Labor announcements did? Sorry, what announcements did Labor make that got on the front page of the paper? Because I'm sure none of them did. Uh, <laughs> but for those of you who actually want to know about what Labor announced this week, was there mm. any major policy uh, uh, drops that the campaign? <coughs> yeah. So look, I think the first week they've been really, really focused on trying to make that distinct case between themselves and the current government on on care and on health. Um, so they've announced, you know, 50 um, uh, urgent care clinics to take the pressure off our hospital system around the country. Um, they've announced investment in um, early intervention for children with hearing loss, audiology intervention. Their focus has been very much this week on local announcements, but that have a national impact. Um, and I think this is where we're seeing some different campaigning than back in 2019. There's, there's a real focus on those target seats, but tying them into that bigger narrative around labour care and Labor will invest in health. You can trust Labor to protect Medicare. The other big one, of course, was um, restoring the telehealth uh, appointments for people with mental health conditions in regional and rural Australia. That's a huge issue coming out of the pandemic. That's a very smart policy and it will resonate in those communities. So I think there's a, you know, there's a smart campaign strategy there to build local announcements targeted at regions and outer suburbs and key seats into the broader national conversation about Labor's record on health and care policies and that Labor cares for the community. And where did um, Albo spend most of his time this week doing those announcements to get a sense of where exactly? I, I thought no, I'd throw that question to you, uh, which I've just made up right there and then. But <laughs> no, right. I, I, I know that he was in, uh, he was in, Ho he was in Tassie, yep. he was in Hobart, he was in Melbourne as well. He's been getting around a bit. Yep. Yeah, so he was in Tassie for the um, audiology intervention announcement. There's a, there's a you know organisation there that will receive the funding, but it's it's also part of a national program. That was smart, I thought. Um, he made uh, several announcements in Melbourne um, and uh, in Adelaide. There was an announcement earlier this week about food standards for aged care, partnering with the Maggie Beer Foundation. I'm particularly chuffed with that one. I've been having conversations with um, the team about that for a long time. Um, so you know, there's some smart local campaigning but that builds into their their big narrative um, and I think that Adelaide one you know it was focused they're very focused on Boothby um, and on getting someone like maybe who's got a, a high profile and, and a smart campaign. Uh, well uh, actually I should mention to our um, our audience actually I think my internet's um, breaking up a bit guys so I apologize for that um, uh, we will be doing uh, in, later in the, um, the, the this election season. We'll be breaking up these episodes, and half the episode will be um, with these two wonderful human beings. But the other half will be bringing some people from specific states to come and break down uh, the contests in those states. Um, particularly, we'll be focused on WA, Queensland, and uh, New South Wales. So look out for that as well. Um, we've had two ads drop. Uh, David, if I can start with you, um, we saw an ad come from the Liberal camp on Saturday night, which was a big indication that the, the election was going to be called the next day. Um, David, I want to get your talk us through um, what you could glean from the Liberal campaign ad that Scott Morrison and the campaign put out on Saturday night. Sure. Um, well, <clears throat> both parties have have chosen to go for a longer format with their launch ads. Um, the Liberal ad was um, 1 minute 20. Uh, and they used that time uh, well in terms of the pace of the ad. Um, it, it, I mean, fundamentally, I think it was uh, a superb political commercial. It, 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 high production values, mood and solemnity, um, the ad really sought to accomplish two things. The first was an emotional connection with Morrison, um, and he performs very well in the ad. Um, you, the viewer is invited to think that he's sitting, he or she is sitting in a lounge room 
with Morrison and Morrison is speaking from the heart. And it sets the foundational themes of the Liberal Party campaign, which is um, to stick with a proven government in uncertain times. And it talks about how this country has faced um, drought, flood, fire, plague and now war. Uh, and his is a team that has met these challenges and he still loves Australia. Um, <laughs> Australia um, has, you know, lots of reasons to be optimistic, notwithstanding these mighty challenges. So it's it, it, the ad only sought to accomplish a couple of things, and I think it did that. Um, and it leaves the viewer with a sense that, you know, this is a tough job. Um, there's been an extraordinary challenges, um, and here's a guy who's doing his best. So um, I thought it was a, a very impressive launch ad. Yes, begrudgingly <laughs> i agree when i saw that ad i went oh that's pretty good like i won't say it's it's morning in america type style ad but it had that there was a tone to it like the shot um looking into i guess he's in the lodge or looking into him sitting at his desk at night just sort of yeah. set that tone and i thought are oh, you fuckers that's actually it's the solemnity they got the mood right didn't yeah. they? the yeah. solemnity of it um yeah it, the, the, you're behind the veil looking at a person who's got mighty responsibilities. Mm. Yeah. The only thing, like the, the... And the ad wasn't overly ambitious. This is a critical point when we turn our minds to the Labor ad. Um, it, it, it only sought to do a couple of things. Um, set the tone, build a connection with the man. And it also incorporated a bit of story of us which I think is critical in any kind of, you know, you know, public narrative in, in which you want to make yourself, the, you the protagonist, along with the rest of the constituency that you seem to work with. And eventually you build in an antagonist that's stopping that or creating that uncertainty, which I'm sure they'll probably do later in their, in the, in, in their campaign work. Uh, but it create, I thought it established a sort of a story of us, which I thought was quite clever, which is rare in politics, in Australian politics. Rarely do we see... Good politicians get up and certainly never do a story of self. And if they do, it's shit. Um, and then they do a story of us and a story of now. And I thought there was, a, there was a bit of that in there as well, which I thought was interesting. I would be critical. Like the 15-second the, the hold on the wedding ring was just like over the top. I was like, I can't. It felt like 15 seconds, didn't it? Yeah, it really <laughs> did. Like, I mean, I, I think Alba should do a piss take and do a, like a 15-second shot of his um, <coughs> ear, earring that he used to wear. It was a younger bloke. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, yeah, piss off. Um, anyway, yeah, it was a reasonably good start. Then uh, Labor put out an ad, uh, maybe yeah. the next day. Um, Emma, to talk us through that. So, look, I think they were quite contrasting ads. And if I just reflect quickly on the Liberal one, I agree that it was a slick production and I think um, they, it, it did exactly what they set out to do with it, right? I'm not so sure that what they set out to do with it is going to resonate as strongly as they think it will or as even perhaps we think it will um, because what they're effectively saying is these are dangerous times. We know we've all lived in terrible times. You know, it's the don't change horses midstream argument, right? But Morrison has not been a reliable horse during those times and I think sort of painting himself as I've got this, I'm here for you, you know, um, is also as likely there's the risk that it reminds people of all the things he didn't do and all the things he wasn't there for. So I'll just throw that caveat in. But the the Labor campaign was, I think, quite different. Um, it, it much, much more so focused on the future, which is as Albanese wants to paint it, right? He's talking about building a better future. So rather than reflecting too much on these have been the terrible times we've lived in um, and being terribly, you know, openly critical of the current government, uh, it's been more obliquely so, you know. So Australia deserves a Prime Minister who shows up, he says at the start. And and then he sort of ties his key themes together, um, you know, sitting down with a with an older woman, smiling at a young woman in an office, um, you know, walking around with tradies, talking about making things, more making things here. Mm. Um, uh, so he's trying to cover kind of the whole of society with that. He's at a, a childcare centre. He goes to a doctor's surgery. So he's clearly playing up those images of labour caring. Um, and I think... It is a very forward-looking, a very forward-looking ad. It's very both ads very focused on the leaders themselves, very presidential in tone. Um, 
but Labor's is perhaps not as as slick a piece as the Liberal uh, Party or the Coalition ad, but I think it does capture those key campaign themes quite strongly. This is me, this is where I've come from. Journalists are sick of it now, right? They're sick of hearing his log cabin story, but there are still plenty of people out there. At the same time they say we're sick of hearing this, they say no one knows who Albo is. So, you know, him him portraying his background um, I think is, is still important, but then it is very much about... How can we build a better future? I'll be someone who shows up for you. There'll be childcare. There'll be aged care. We'll be making more things in Australia. It's very much about that that core narrative. Um, so it's a it's a competent piece of election campaign kickoff. I think. And I, I did like the way that they did try to ground some of the I guess the the moments in um, Elbow's um, uh, upbringing that uh, then this leads us to understand why he's prioritising this, why he values yeah. education, why he values um, healthcare because of these moments and. I don't know, how, how long did that ad go for? They, they got a lot in in a very short period of time. Yeah, it was one about, minute. It was a one minute. Yeah. One, one minute, minute on the bark. Yeah. yeah. I think I think that's right. I think sort of he's tried very hard to tie that. Look, I know what it's like to do it tough. That's why we invest in these programs that have, and why Labor has also always been the party that introduces, you know, universal services, etc. This is why I think that the job seeker thing is risky for him at the moment because that coming out in the first week that, you know, we're not going to look at increasing the rate of job seeker in our first budget. It's part of the fiscal responsibility messaging and that's important, but it flies directly in the face of his own log cabin story. David Feeney, your thoughts on the first ad from uh, the party? Yeah, I, I'd like to spend a moment on this if possible because I thought it was a really bad ad <laughs> and I think it's important that we understand why. Um, I mean, the, the, this was a pamphlet on television yeah. uh, and you could tell from the moment it began that it was a political ad. There was no subterfuge uh, in its introduction. It, so in contrast to the Liberal ad, which is... Uh, you know, 120, uh, one minute 20 and is trying to do only a few things. We've got a brazenly political ad, uh, utterly formulaic. Um, I thought Anthony's performance in the ad was wooden. As Emma has described, he goes from scene to scene to scene to scene to scene. Um, the, the ad is trying to do way too much. Uh, and uh, it, it, it is, it's running through a checklist so we have the log cabin um, beginning um, and then we have, you know, a series of vignettes and then we've got, you know, a, a better future. Um, it, we race through the checklist. There's no emotional connection between um, the viewer and the, and the production. Um, and as I say, there's, in contrast to the Liberal ad, Albo is moving around um, from place to place, but there's no emotional connection between him and the viewer. Um, and uh, you are left with uh, a, an utterly forgettable political ad, pamphlets on television. Um, there's no creative in it, as we see with the Liberal ad. So I think uh, uh, my, part of my creeping anxiety about this election campaign is the standard of uh, creative and production on their side, at least in week one, looks quite a bit better than ours. Mm. Uh, and, you know, th this is the same kind of formulaic TV ad um, that Labor's been producing in the federal domain now for the best part of 10 years, and we've been undeterred by defeat. We're sticking <laughs> with it. Um, I, don't, so I don't disagree, David. I think what you do see, as I said, it's a competent campaign launch ad, but not much more than that. And the problem is this is what Morrison's good at, right? He's not good at governing. He's very good at campaigning and he's very well, good. Well, he's probably just good at hiring people. Who he's good, good at hiring people that do good marketing. And you're absolutely right. You know, the, the Albanese ad was made up of stock footage that's been taken over the last couple of years of him out and about on the campaign trail. There wasn't enough of that direct connection. Whereas, But I do think there's a concern... Uh, for me, you know, for insiders like us, for political junkies like us, gee, that's a good-looking ad. I wonder if it's a little bit too slick for some people out there in the community, you know, the, the, the moody overtones, the staring out the window, the I'm a serious man of history, whether that will resonate with people who've seen him over the last... Yeah. Years. I mean, I, Emma, I thought your point uh, about uh, Morrison's ad relying on a performance that he never delivered... Mm is profound. Um, but here's the thing, right? That argument will only be nailed if we start to see Labor ads point that fact out. Yep. 
is even the strongest position will fall if it's not defended. And we saw in 2019 how Labor completely failed to run a negative campaign over the liberal years of chaos that had preceded 2019. There was no ad there about Abbott to Turnbull to um, Morrison. Morrison got away with a clean slate in 2019. Um, We cannot afford to let that happen again. And so I think your points are well made, but unless they are exploited by a Labor campaign that points out the fact that he didn't order the vaccines. Yeah. I think it was in Hawaii during the fires. You know, this is a, Australia has been through drought, fire, famine and plague, but he wasn't here for it. Yeah. Um, unless we ruthlessly produce quality ads making that point, um, he'll get away with it. Yeah, and I look, there was a great ad on social media a few months ago, you know, that's just, he's just not up to the job, that, that just spliced together all those comments of his own, I don't hold a hose, mate, that's a matter for the Premiers, oh, that's a matter for the Chief Minister, yeah. uh, that's not my job, that's not my job. And at the end it just said, he's just not up to the job. Now, that was a fantastic ad and a fantastic cut-through message. But why is that playing on social media where there aren't many swinging voters and this is playing on television where all the swinging voters are? I think I did notice uh, on Sunday morning that um, the ALP um, uh, NATSEC uh, CHQ campaign did produce an ad that grabbed the Morrison ad and clipped together answers to the sentences he said about all the challenges that they had where they he, he was like, you know, we've had, I think it was like, you know, we've had um, drought and they clipped in him saying, mate, I don't hold a, hold a hose. Mm-hmm. You know, we've um, we've had a pandemic and then they clipped in him saying it's not a race. It's not a race. Did you see yeah. that? I thought that actually won... Yeah. Great turnaround time in response. That uh, tells me that they've got certainly their, uh, their their digital team or whoever's doing that work are quick on it and that was smart and I thought that w- was good and a good rebuttal. But to your point, David, yeah, in t- watching what our negative frame will be against or as I like to call it a contrast frame will be mm. uh, against the Tories um, mm. will be critical and I just hope it's not another one of those formulaic Grayscale images, black background, yeah. yellow impact font, guy with yeah. deep voice ad. Please just don't roll yeah. that out again. Like oh, it be different. pamphlets on television. We actually need some creative. Yeah, yeah we do. And I look, I'll just say one last thing about this. Um, Albo is not naturally inclined to run a negative campaign. Um, and certainly last time around, it was impossible to run a negative campaign against such an unknown incumbent. But this time around, if you're not running a negative campaign on this guy, you're just not telling the truth. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I think 80% of our 2019 campaign should have been negative. I mean, they just dragged the country through three changes of Prime Minister, yep. um, years of destabilisation, and we let all of that pass in silence. Um, we should have nailed them to a cross for it. Nice Easter reference. Okay, let's last couple of questions before we wrap, wrap up. Um, the media. I want to get a sense from you guys. I know we have touched on the media a little bit already in the show, but um, there are um, there are a couple of things I do want to ask you about, um, particularly how do we think, broadly speaking, how do we think the media's behaved this week? But I do want to go to this thing, this, um, this whining and dining by the <laughs> Prime Minister of the, I'm assuming it was the Canberra uh, Press Gallery or sections of that, and please correct me if you know a bit more detail on this. Um, what are our thoughts on this? And I want to go to a point here that um, I want to tell you a very, very quick story um, that uh, is about Scottish football, actually. I wouldn't normally do this, but I discovered over the last four or five months that I think about 45% of my audience are Celtic supporters based either in Glasgow or in Scotland or expats who live in Australia. The uh, former chief executive of the Rangers Football Club, uh, the guy that owned it, his name's David Murray. He used to take all the Scottish sports editors out for lunch all the time and would wine and dine them in the finest restaurants of Glasgow and give and offer them what was referred to as succulent lamb. Lamb in Scotland is really expensive. We've all travelled overseas. We've discovered that lamb is more expensive overseas than it's in Australia. So this is quite a, a hoity-toity dish. Someone broke this story that uh, David Murray was taking all these sports editors out uh, and, you know, whining and dining them. And the payoff was they weren't going to write shit articles about the Rangers Football Club. Meanwhile, Rangers were ripping off the tax system uh, mm-hmm. And were, fraud, uh, were def- defrauding the the, uh, the British taxpayer, and the club went bankrupt. And no one covered this story until it was too late, because <laughs> all the journals were all paid off with succulent <laughs> lamb. What's the difference with what Scott Morrison is doing right now? Is he offering the Canberra Press Gallery succulent lamb so they don't write shitty stories about him over the course of the next thirty-seven days? Um, who wants to go first? Um, uh, David, do you want to go first on this one? 
Oh, well, it's probably better if I go first because Emma actually will know what she's talking about on this subject, <laughs> whereas I can just vent. Um, the first point, I think, is everybody does it. So this is not just some Morrison innovation in 2022. This is custom and practice forever. Um, it does, however, go to the fact that there is this chasm of expectation between the political class and everybody else about what goes on. The idea that you have drinks with journos, I, I certainly did you know, drinks with the journos on the rounds that were of interest to me um, when I was um, in the uh, ministry and shadow ministry, and, and, and everybody does. And it's custom and practice to try and socialise with the journos who are covering your round um, so that, um, you, that you can talk to them offline, if you like, about what's going on and what they should be looking for and vice versa. The, the second point, I'd, and obviously to the outside the political class, this is greased with shock and horror um, because there are apparently still a few tender souls out there who think that journalists are holding truth to power. Of course they're not. <laughs> they gave up on that years ago. They, the journos are part of the political class who all ache to be insiders who all understand that the people best qualified to run this country are trapped in journalism. Um, and so they will... Um, so there is this chasm, I guess, between how the political class operates and how that's perceived outside. And I'd make one last point, and that is that there is no way that you, these vampires don't get bought. You might be able to rent a journalist, but you can't buy one. Um, the, the, I, this will not change their coverage for a moment. You know, the, I can imagine the journalists who are at that event, um, a fair portion of them um, are died in the wall Liberal Party barracks anyway, um, uh, but the others would have been there on reconnaissance, mm. not there to be bought. Yep. Emma. I think that's it in a nutshell. Um, David said at the end, the ones that are already bought and paid for are bought and paid for, and the others would have been there to find out who else was talking to whom. Um, it, it does happen all the time. I, 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 look, I'm not as harsh about our journalists as David is. I think we do still have some really good journalists in the press gallery that will speak truth to power, um, and you can usually identify them by the ones that Scott Morrison's not willing to talk to, like Laura Tingle. Um, but, you know, the, this sort of thing does go on. It's the, the, What's interesting to me about it is that this reflects the rise of social media, right, at 2016. 2019 and now each time there have been more and more people active and politically active on social media and those different social media channels now are breaking down into into tribes not just within the the channels but between the channels so you've got a lot of young progressive people on TikTok uh, you've got your Twitter um, Labor Army and and uh, a lot of the more, more vociferous liberal and national supporters tend to congregate on Facebook. Um, uh, there aren't many swinging voters being persuaded by social media. There aren't. It's a great place for having a debate. It's a great place for raising an issue or a profile, but it's not a great place for changing a lot of minds. But what it does do is allow people to say, hey, look, the journos are all having drinks with the Prime Minister. We didn't know that happened. And what it's enabling us to do, I think, as, a, as people engaged in the political process, is understand that some things that we take for granted are still quite shocking to the general mm -hmm. population, right? They mm -hmm. still still see that and I think rightly as a form of if not corruption but certainly collusion um, and I go, go back to the fantastic um, Jay Rosen article and clip he came out in 2011 and, and was on late line where he brought up the fact that we have a, a a political program called The Insiders that features journalists he found to be absolutely remarkable. There's a bit of disingenuousness there as though it doesn't happen in the States. But it's absolutely true that when the public sees the journalists as part of the political class, they have less trust that they're being told the truth. But very politically engaged people have less trust that they're being told the truth. But the flip side of that is that all the people out there that aren't that politically engaged and who aren't, you know, talking about Politics 101 and the Ozpol community on Twitter um, don't necessarily see that as an outrage. It, it would largely pass them by. It was mainly a social media outrage. Um, and so they're not seeing that kind of how the sausage is made uh, relationship between the press gallery and all, all sides of politics who, as David said, all do it. I, if I could just yeah. add one thing to that, and I'm reminded of, you know, when Trump successfully turned his crowds on the journos mm. at his rallies and denounced all criticism as fake news, mm. um, that brought into sharp relief the very low esteem that journalists and their work are held in 
more broadly for precisely the reasons Emma has just articulated. There is a broad distrust of uh, of our media. Um, and for the next sort of 30-odd days, the media have got this monopoly on information concerning the election, but we shouldn't imagine that they are trusted with that monopoly. Um, what they say is not necessarily believed. Um, yeah. Well, that comes to my uh, last part of the uh, of the um, of today's episode, which I want to have an. I want us to uh, nominate someone to win an award each week, which is the um, what I call the Tory with a typewriter award. Um, I've put it in the questions for this week. I'm not sure if either of you have um, got any nominees for this particular week, um, but I will open it up to you, uh, uh, Emma. Do you have a, a nominee for Tory with a typewriter award this week? Look, it's pretty hard to go past some of Phil Curry's headlines this week. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to dump on Phil or anyone else. Um, but yeah, some of his uh, latest headlines this week have been pretty stenographer-like, I think, um, and and very, and it, you know, Simon Benson's usually the one that takes out this this trophy for me every every election but uh yeah phil's phil's giving a good run this week uh if you if no, neither of you could come up with someone i was just going to award it to phil curry anyway but um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting you've noted that um david do you have a, ty- a tory with a typewriter nominee for this week uh probably all of news corp deserves the prize <laughs> i think for um campaign discipline for focus for remaining on message one of the tightest campaign operations in the country i mean the thing about phil curry is he's a, he's actually a good journalist right yeah yeah um, intelligent, articulate, often insightful. It's those kinds of journalists who disappoint us um, at, at these moments when they do something that we know is less than their tradecraft. Precisely. There, there are, of course, many dozens of journalists who don't disappoint us because we know how hopeless they are. Mm. Um, and I think they perhaps deserve this award because they have filled out newspapers this week with... Um, with the proposition that Australian politics is a trivial pursuit game mm. um, and it's been unedifying at best. Well, in that case, I'll award one vote to Phil Corey and one vote to the entire News Corp journalist uh, stable for this week and we'll keep a tally as we move through the next six weeks. Uh, uh, Emma Dawson, David Feeney, thank you so much for coming on today's uh, show, launching our six-week program of our federal election recap. It's going to be huge. I think today was a, a, a great success. So I've loved having you both on the show. Um, uh, uh, Emma, do you want to give your Twitter handle a plug for folks that want to follow you on Twitter? Yes, I'm, I'm at Dawson EJ. Excellent. And uh, David, yourself, which I just still love your Twitter handle. <laughs> it hasn't changed. Uh, at Feeney, F-E-E-N-E-Y, numeral for Batman, B-A-T-M-A-N, because obviously I'm a big fan of Batman and his struggle in Gotham City. <laughs> Indeed. Um, can I say to both of you and also to all of our um, loyal listeners out there, uh, happy Easter, happy Passover, happy Ram- Ramadan. Hope it's a safe, <clears throat> excuse me, a safe and holy one over this weekend. And we'll see you next Friday. Um, we'll uh, we'll see you all. We'll, we record these shows uh, every Thursday afternoon. They'll be up every Friday for everyone that wants to check it out. Um, tell your, all your Labor listeners and all your friends. Get around it. Um, and until next week, uh, thanks, David, and thanks, Emma. Thanks, Thank David. Thank you very much. Cheers. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.